The scripture reading this evening is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 to 55. Hear the word of the Lord. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're continuing in Mark. And um, tonight there's sort of three different pieces of this story that I want to tell you about. Um, but... You know, kind of the, the one of the big ideas to take away from this is that what Jesus is doing, what Mark is doing in the gospel here, is he's moving us towards the cross and he's showing us the route. He's showing us the path. Now, it's May. We're headed towards the summer. Hopefully, you're going to get to do something fun this summer. We're going to go to the mountains. And usually, when we go to the mountains, we try to do some adventures and we're going to rock climb this summer. And we've checked our ropes and I've checked our gear and made sure everything's updated and made sure everything's prepared. And that's just something we do whenever we go to the mountains, we go climbing. Probably about eight or nine years ago, we went climbing near in Colorado in Estes Park. And, um, you know, I got up early, I scouted out some places, I looked online and kind of found a place to go. And what I found was this place where, if you can imagine, there's these 40-foot faces and there's a lake down below you, and it's a clear, blue, beautiful Colorado day. The air is crisp, and we just had like eight or nine hours of hanging out and climbing. Um, I don't care how good of a climber you are, unless you are like, you know, National Geographic kind of climber. All climbers use some kind of guide to find out which route to take. Unless you're setting your own protection and stuff, which is a really dangerous thing. So most people, you have to go to a guide. 
And if you go online, there's all sorts of sources. But if you don't do that, you're not going to find something beautiful to climb. You're just going to probably go to a place that's not safe. The climbing community takes care of all this stuff. So you can trust them, find a route, and go spend your time on the wall in as safe as rock climbing can be and, and have a great day. Um, as we read here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is reminding us. He's saying, I have a path, and this is the path I'm going on. This is the route. And you're going to want to be a part of this if you understand it. And I'm going to show you what that's going to look like. And what you're going to experience, which is what we see in Bartimaeus, is that if you will see who I am and what I'm doing, and if you'll trust in the route that I'm giving you, you're going to experience the kind of joy even the Bartimaeus experienced when his sight was restored. And so tonight, my prayer for us is that as we think about this together, we really we see Jesus and we see the mission he's calling us on, and then we ask ourselves, like, are we a part of this? Are we actively following Jesus? Are we taking advantage of this invitation that the Son of God, the Lord, the Son of David, as Bartimaeus calls him, invites us to take with him, to follow his path, because it leads to eternal and present joy. And so first, let's look more closely at this story. In verses 32 to 34, Jesus again predicts his death. Now, he's done this three times. Three times, Jesus has explained to his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem. That, that actually one element's unique here in Mark 10. But that he's going to go up, he's going to be handed over, and he's going to be flogged, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be spit upon, he's going to be falsely accused, then he's going to be condemned and crucified, and then rightly accused by the Father for the sins of the world, but then, as we read there in, in, at the end of what he says in um, verse 33, that the Son of Man will be delivered, they will condemn him, they'll mock him, but three days later he will rise. Now each time Jesus does this, the disciples get part of it, but they also don't really get it. And what Mark does at the end of each of those three occurrences is he gives, three, he gives miracles or miraculous things that happen right there in the present moment because Jesus has declared this. So in the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, there's a blind man that's healed and he's given sight. Jesus proclaims, this is what the kingdom looks like. The disciples go, okay, and then a blind man sees. Jesus gives him vision. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says it again, and then we have the transfiguration. And Jesus takes Peter and James up with him to see um, this transfiguration. And they hear the Father say, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to Him. See Him. Like, trust Him. Listen to what He says. And then here in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, He says it again. He predicts His death for a third time. James and John make this kind of a little bit of a boneheaded request. And then what happens? Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is coming, and he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus heals him. He says, Go, your faith has healed you. Jesus takes the 12 disciples aside again in this moment. He wants to be abundantly clear about what's going to happen to him. You know, our God is not a God of confusion. There's not like a hack. There's not like a code. There's not a secret password. There's not sort of a certain level of spirituality before you can experience Jesus' presence. Jesus is very clear with his disciples. Here's what's going to happen. I want to prepare you. This is going to be scary. I'm going to be delivered to the chief priests, to the teachers of the law. They will condemn me to death. They will hand me over to the Gentiles. They'll mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to flog me. They're going to kill me. And when all hope seems lost, remember this. Three days later, he will rise. Then, as Jesus is inviting them to see him and say, hey, 
This is what my kingdom is. This is who I am. This is what, I was, this is what I'm going to do. We come to this little conversation that these two brothers have with Jesus. They've heard this incredible thing, right? Then we come to verses 35 to 45. Then James and John, like right after this, three days later, I'll rise. This is what's going to happen. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him and say, Hey, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Did they just hear what happened? Jesus says, okay, what do you want me to do for you? They say, well, this is what we've been thinking. We know you're going to need us. Uh, we, we're kind of, we've been with you. like We've been with you through this whole mission thing, and you're going to do this big kingdom stuff. And so you know, we were just talking around the campfire, my brother and I, and, and here's, here's our bright idea. You ready? Imagine God saying this to you. Okay, well, tell me what you want me to do for you, Jesus says. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Like, did you just hear what happened? It's like the disciples get it, but they also sort of miss what's happening. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Now, what Jesus is saying here when he says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? He's saying, can you actually, are you actually proposing that you can fulfill my mission with me? Because here's where I'm headed. It's raining. I'm going to be condemned by the Father. I am going to suffer in a way you can't imagine. I am going to actually experience something you have never experienced, the absence of the Father's love and affections because I am going to carry the weight of the world on my shoulders and I am going to die for you. I am going to be made fun of. I am going to be marginalized. I'm going to be falsely accused. People are going to spit on me. And at any moment, you just saw what happened in Mark chapter 9. The Father from heaven and earth spoke from the clouds and said, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to Him. That's who I am. And I am going to give myself over. And I'm going to do it because I trust the Father and I love him, and because I love you, and there's nothing I'm going to let separate you from me and my kingdom. So you don't even know what you're asking, and you can't handle this. But, Jesus says, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. In other words, he's saying, you are going to follow me. Now, you are going to follow after me in my service. You are going to follow after me in my kingdom. You're going to have a part in it. But the thing you're asking as Jesus goes goes on, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. In other words, bros, you don't understand the big picture. Your, your mind can't handle it. What I need you to do is to trust me and to follow me. Jesus goes on and says, but I tell you what, let me, let me tell you what you are going to be a part of by drinking this cup that I'm talking about in, in my baptism. They return to the group the ten hear about this. They're indignant with James and John. Again, it's just another evidence that what they're doing, they take this brief moment, maybe it's between conversations, and they say, hey, he's alone. Let's go talk to him real quick. Hey, Jesus, we got an idea. Before the other ten can be a part of this, can you put one of us on your right and one of us on your left? And we're brothers anyway, and you're like our brother, so like this would be great. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They're angry at them. It's the same kind of word that's used when Jesus says to his disciples who are preventing the children from coming to him, Jesus was indignant with them for preventing the children from coming to them. Well, now the disciples are indignant. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. 
you know, like what James and John want. You, you know that like people who are in charge, people who are the rulers, people who are the lords, they, they have authority and they have power and they have position. You know how that works, right, guys? Yeah, we know. Verse 43, well, not so with you. So now Jesus is revealing what his kingdom looks like. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is, you know, Jesus is wrapping this together for James and John and for all the disciples. James and John have just asked, can we be at your right hand? And Jesus says, well, here's the thing. I'm going to be given as a ransom for many. And that's not something you can do. But what you can do is you can imitate who I am and what I'm doing and how I'm living and how I'm revealing the kingdom of God by serving others, by even becoming a slave to others, because in doing that, you are really reflecting who I am in my kingdom. How do the disciples respond? Well, we don't know. Mark doesn't tell us, but it seems like crickets. We come to verse 46. They came to Jericho. Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. So now they're, they've come into Jericho. People have been around. This is all taking place. Now they're leaving Jericho. They're heading to Jerusalem. And on their way out, a blind man named Bartimaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So Bartimaeus cannot see. He's blind. But do you see that he's seeing who Jesus is? He's calling out and saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He can't see physically, but he's hoping in his heart. He's communicating with his words. Okay, you are, you are Jesus of Nazareth. You've been doing amazing things. I've heard about you healing people in Bethsaida. The rumors have spread. Son of David, heal me. Have mercy on me. For him to call out to Jesus as son of David is to say, King, Lord, Master, will you please have mercy on me? The concept of mercy being given, what you don't necessarily deserve or what you can't claim as a right that is owed to you, he calls out and says, will you just give me from your love Will you do this for me? I can't see. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. Just envision this in your head. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Bring him over here. So they called to the blind man, and now apparently the disciples have a skip in their step because they're saying, hey, cheer up. On your feet. He's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumps to his feet, and he comes to Jesus. Now, Jesus asks him, the same question that he asked the disciples. You ready? What do you want me to do for you? The blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see. Not I want position. Not I want power. Same question. The blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus says, go. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This man saw Jesus. He saw who he really is, that he's the king, he's the Lord. But he's also the one who can be merciful. You know, do you ever think, when you think about your relationship with God, or you think about his interactions with our world, do you understand that God actually expresses kindness and goodness to people who don't care about him and who are not interested in him? How much more does he express kindness and goodness and love to those who call him Father? God's, he is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He's compassionate. 
And what Jesus is revealing here is that if you really want to see him and you want to see his kingdom, see this quality of love. It's what we call irresistible grace. If you will see God's grace for what it actually is and not for what you've made it out to be or what you've heard people say that it is, but if you actually look in the scriptures and you'll read these stories and you'll say, what kind of grace do you have? It will give your heart vision. You'll be able to see Jesus for who he is. So two ideas as we kind of um, come from describing this story into some, some thoughts. The first is, what does it really mean to see Jesus in his kingdom? What does that really mean? Jesus tells them, we're going to Jerusalem. This is going to happen. And if you weren't picking up on it, the disciples are not excited about this plan. They're not excited about Jesus being handed over and killed. The concept that he's going to die and then rise again right before their eyes, they still haven't caught this in their head. We, we see this later with Peter. He denies Jesus three times. He's, Jesus is telling them, this is who I am, and they can't see it. You know, for us in our own spirituality, God is telling us who he is in the scriptures. And sometimes our hearts tell us something else. And the Holy Spirit, what we do when we're meeting for worship like this and when we're praying, we're saying, God, show me who you are. Show me who Jesus is. Blow past my pain. Blow past my discouragement. Blow past my misconceptions. Jesus, show me who you are. And Jesus says, this is who I am, and I will rise again. I will bring renewal. I will bring life. Regardless of if the disciples like his plan or they want to stop it or they don't quite comprehend it, Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. What do you want from me? It's almost like God approaches us in the same way, that we ask that question. Where we call out to God in prayer and God says, what do you want from me? What can I do for you? If we call out to God for mercy, if we call out to Him for grace, if we call out to Him to give us strength to face suffering and difficulty and challenges, God is gracious and responds. What the disciples actually see, which is so strange as we read it, which is why Mark has it, is an opportunity for self-advancement. It's actually an opportunity for them to kind of create their own little kingdom and say, I know what would be best for me. What would be best for me is to be at the right hand of Jesus as he opens it, as he goes into the kingdom and does these great things. I know God. I know what's best for me. It's why sometimes, especially when we're early in our faith or when people think about prayer, that sometimes it gets thought of as kind of like God's a divine genie. We kind of rub the lamp and say, okay, I get my wishes. God, here's what I want. It's why in the Lord's Prayer that we pray together every single week. Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want what you want. We know your ways are good. Would you reveal to us who you are so we can catch the vision of your kingdom? You know, the disciples are actually asking for position and power. The, the moment Jesus asks them, what do you want? What, what do you want from me? That's what they ask. Whereas Bartimaeus, which we learn about his faith in this, Jesus says, what do you want? He goes, I just want to be able to see. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. What Bartimaeus is able to see is that in trusting in the Lord, in trusting in the King, in trusting in the one who can do, have mercy, is he is given new life. And that's evidenced by the way that he responds. Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. What does Bartimaeus do when Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you? Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. There it is. 
as we study the scriptures together, as we live life together in, as, in communion as people in this church and in this community, as we follow Jesus, we begin to see him for who he is, and he sends us out, and we follow him. It's an irresistible kind of grace. Whatever your understanding is about how God works, and listen, we all have misconceptions about how God works. I have misconceptions. There are times where God reveals things to me where I was longing for the wrong thing or I was thinking about something incorrectly. That's why we read in the Psalms, God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. Jesus is inviting us to see him for who he is, to say, Jesus, give me vision, give me sight. Maybe it's into the pride of your own heart. You know, maybe it's in uh, doubts that you have. God, I am doubting you. Why am I doubting you? To say, Lord, in the, in the midst of my doubts, will you please reveal who you are? I'm trying to see you. God is gracious to us. He responds to us. He gives us insight. He wants us to be able to see. You know, if you've ever been to a hospital, you go into a hospital, it can be really confusing. Thankfully, they put up signs. But I remember going downtown one time and I was visiting someone at our, from our church who was there sick. And um, they had the signs down because they were painting the walls and I couldn't find them. I had to call them and text them and say, hey, I don't know where to go and go back and forth. And the, the people up front were so apologetic. Were saying, oh, we don't have any signs. We're sorry. Now, you're not actually supposed to navigate life that way. You're supposed to read the scriptures and say, God, who are you? Jesus, what does it mean to see what does it mean for me to call out to you and ask for mercy? And what does it mean for me to experience it? The problem is, is that sometimes our own faith or situations we're in or struggles we're having become kind of the main thing for us. And it's precisely in that moment that we return to the scriptures and we say, Jesus, help me to see. Help me to see past this. Or maybe we're sort of overwhelmed with the good things. You know, I remember when I was younger, how often I would pray, God, please help me be a good student like minutes before my test, right? I never prayed the prayer any other time. It was just when I was absolutely desperate because life was going to be difficult. And I remember being at a youth camp one time and the pastor saying, what do you think God thinks about prayers like that? He goes, I bet God loves them. Because when you're desperate, that's who you run to. You know, even with that amount of faith, that small amount of faith that says, God, please just deliver me from this hole that I've put myself in, God is merciful. He's gracious to us. The more we live into that, the more that we trust that His ways are best, even when it's difficult for us to comprehend, the more we begin to enter into this experience of seeing Jesus for who He is. And the more that we see Him for who He is, we will be caught up. We will be drawn into the kind of relationship with Him where we, we understand we are the recipients of divine kindness, divine grace, divine mercy. Jesus is beating that drum for the disciples. Look, I'm going to suffer. That's most of what he says. He says, but I'm going to rise again. Cool. Uh, we got a question for you. Sure. Can we sit at your right and left hand when you, when you rise? Like, not, Jesus, we're so sorry. That sounds horrible. Like, nothing? Just, boom, immediately request. And even there, Jesus doesn't turn from them. He continues to pursue them. He continues to reveal himself to them. And they become the ones, of course, who write the scriptures for us. Their hearts are irresistibly drawn to this powerful grace that God has for them, even when they don't deserve it. You know, I don't know if you've seen this movie yet called Synchronicity. It's on Netflix now. You can watch it. And I'm sorry if you've seen it because I'm going to ruin some of it for you. But there's a really, the, the, basically the movie is about a man and his best friend. And his best friend, his daughter, 
takes a pill, this new synthetic drug that they've come up with, and, and they take, he takes this pill, or she does, and she, and she disappears. And they have no explanation. She's gone. And so her family file missing persons reports. They, they just begin to mourn the fact that she's been gone um, for like a year to two years. They, they just don't know how to find her. And so the father is just absolutely distraught. Obviously, his daughter's missing. But his friend says, you know what, I think I'm going to look. He starts to experiment. He says, I wonder what's really happened here. And he begins to connect the dots that something else is going on. So he, he takes the drug, and what he discovers is a few moments after you take the drug, you time warp to a different time and space. So, you know, he, he goes at one point into to prehistoric times, and it's ice cold. And he, and he begins to realize that if you're in the same spot and you take this pill, you go to the same spot. So the first time he goes, he comes back almost frozen. The second time he goes, he takes wood with him and sets up a fire so he can like survive the 10 minutes that he's there uh, while he's you know, experiencing this. Well, you can watch the movie, but eventually he figures out how to go to the precise place where the daughter is. And he knows that if he goes, he only has a few minutes before he can find her, get her returned, and then get back safely. Or they'll both be stuck in this other time period. So he goes, he finds her, they make their way back, they're prevented from getting back to their exact spot for a moment, but she makes it and he barely makes it. And what happens is the girl goes back first, she's reunited with her father, and it's beautiful. He's reunited with his daughter. He had no idea where she was, there was no way to find her, and they're absolutely reunited. But then the second part of the story is you see his friend fades in and out of like, kind of like he looks like a hologram almost. He's phasing in and out. And he looks at his friend, and they both realize, they don't say anything, but you, they both realize, I'm stuck over here. And the man who's stuck is communicating to his friend, without saying a word, it was worth it, you're worth it, I love you, don't worry about me. And there's this absolutely beautiful picture of selflessness so that the daughter and the father can be restored. You know, as we read about who Jesus is, he goes to great lengths to suffer so that we can simply be restored to fellowship with the Father. When you think about who God is first, you know, if you're new in the faith or if you've been following Jesus for a long time, when you first, when you, when you think about who is God, one of the most powerful pictures for you to understand is it is like a father whose child has been missing, who have been, and they've been completely reunited, and he can only celebrate. Celebrate over them. The cost of it, of course, is his son. And his son willingly pays the price so that they can be built up. Do, when you see Jesus, what do you see? Do you see the one who sacrificed everything so that you could have peace with God? When you see Jesus, do you see the one who said, I am going to go through it, I'm going to endure all this, but I'm going to rise again? When, you know, there's enough people in here. You've either experienced or you know people who have experienced deep hopelessness and struggle and dark moments. Jesus' resurrection brings light back into the darkness. He's in the business of making dead things come to life. Bartimaeus sees that. And he calls out and Jesus says, go, you're healed. Okay, so do you see Jesus? And then secondly, what does it mean for us to actually follow him? How can we enter into following Jesus as Christians that's what it means for us to, follow, to, be, to be a Christian. We believe Jesus died for our sins. We put our hope in his resurrection. He promises that resurrection will be ours. But what does it mean for us to live daily in light of the resurrection? Or what does it mean for us to live daily and see Jesus? A couple ideas here. One is 
to see Jesus' words regularly. And why do we meet for worship every single week in this church? Why do we read the scriptures every single week in this church? Because one of the most important things for your soul to grow and to flourish and to to develop a hope that can withstand even the most difficult of circumstances is that you see Jesus' words regularly. You know, Psalm 119 says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Titus chapter 2 says that for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodly and worldly passions and yes to an upright and godly life. Or 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, For all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped. God's Word is meant to be a cup we drink from often. You need to hear God's Word. You need to see Jesus in the Scriptures. It's not just a discipline for the sake of knowledge. Actually, this is the food for your soul. Remember the Father's words In Mark chapter 9, verse 7, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. If you want to know the key to spirituality, the key to growing spiritually, if you feel sort of vacant or you feel like you've had a dry spell, I just want to challenge you to remember that all of God's word is living and breathing and active. And for you to say, God, I am struggling. I feel like you're distant. I'm going to read your word. I challenge you to go back and read Mark chapter 10. And say, God, I want to see you. I want to see you in my life. I want to see you in my marriage. I want to see you in my parenting. I want to see you in my workplace. I want to see you in my school. I want to see your goodness and your grace bubble up. I want to see it. To have faith that God's word is is strengthening you. You know, when you're looking at Jesus' word, you're you're being contemplative about his glory. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, says this, The sense that in the universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deepest desire. For glory means good or rapport with God, acceptance by God, response from God, acknowledgement by God, and welcome into the heart of all things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last, and then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always been on the outside, is no mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. God is preparing for us in many ways. Jesus tells us of this in the Gospel Gospel of John chapter 14. That he's He's preparing even a place for us that we can barely imagine. Jesus is offering an unassailable and eternal hope And it's available to you right here in the scriptures for you to feast on. If you want to see Jesus, if you want to grow spiritually, one of the most important things you can do for your soul is to read the scriptures. It's why we're in worship right now. It's why we spend so much time studying God's word because we need to see Jesus and we need to see his kingdom.
Secondly, we need to understand Jesus' version of greatness. Now, if you were going to define for someone, okay, um, what's so great about being a Christian? You know, you'd say, well, I'm forgiven. You know, God, God loves me. I'm not perfect. I'm in process. Those are all true. But if you were going to, if someone were to ask you, okay, what does it mean to be a great Christian? Like, what, what does a really great Christian look like? James and John have their ideas. They want to sit at the right hand and the left hand. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Well, we want to sit at your left and right hand. We want position. We want power. We think that's the key to our hearts being satisfied, is to have power. Then with the blind man, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Rabbi, I want to see. If we will call out to Jesus and say, I want to see, he'll begin to show us what real greatness is and what is real greatness. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I once heard a a friend say, it's really powerful, I think. Jesus will never ask you to forgive someone more than he already has to forgive them. Like as difficult as they've been for you, or as much as you're struggling with it, just understand this. Jesus had to forgive them way more than you. He's just asking you to forgive them for whatever they've done against you. Now, not to downplay uh, the, the impact of someone sinning against you. And I know it can be something as, as minor as being slightly overlooked or a far more offensive thing. But in general, the idea of forgiving people, who would say that's easy to do? It's not easy to do. And yet Jesus is saying, if you really want to figure out what it means to experience greatness in my kingdom, if you really want to experience the kind of life and the renewal and the promises I'm offering to you, here's what it looks like. I want you to be creative about finding ways to serve each other. You know, what does it mean for you to consider the good of another above yourself? What, is it, what does it mean to begin to say, okay, how can I love well? Now, of course, not everybody's married, but you have relationships of people you're close to. But I'll tell you, in my marriage, it's the best lab ever for me to figure out, okay, how can I creatively love as the primary motivation of being kind versus trying to love to kind of prove either I'm being very forgiving or to sort of make a point over here or a little passive of aggression or you know, whatever other tools I'm really good at employing in my marriage. Jesus is inviting us. He's saying, if you want to see my kingdom really come to bear in your marriage or come to bear in your relationships or come to bear in your parenting or in your friendships or in your families, if you really want to see it come to bear, if you really want to experience it, follow my service of you in serving others. And that is when greatness will begin to reveal itself. It's so counterintuitive for us. You're saying that if I consider the good of another person above myself, that I'm going to tap into like divine glory? Yeah, that's what Jesus is saying. Do we really see him for who he is? Do we believe his version of greatness is really going to satisfy us? It means, do we trust and have faith in who Jesus is and what he said above what we think power can give us? Or what we above what we think position can give us? Or above what we think influence can give us? You know, the, the question of where can we serve and love others is a question of where can I express Jesus' greatness in all these places? If you're interested in being part of the kingdom of God, if you're interested in bringing the kingdom of God to bear in places you love and care for, Jesus is saying, here's the key. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. After all, 
The Son of Man did not come to be served. Do you hear those? Jesus is saying, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's really beautiful about that for us is it means that Jesus is saying, I came to give myself as a ransom for you. There's no greater payment that can be paid. There's no price that this cannot pay for. And I am a ransom for you. So what I want you to do is believe that in your heart for yourself and then figure out how to love others like that. that that's what I want from you. You know, this is the greatness of the kingdom, and it's a great mystery that the God of heaven and earth would empty himself and humble himself and give himself as a ransom for us. So, grow spiritually by seeing Jesus in his word. Grow and develop spiritually and see the kingdom of God come to bear in your life by seeking to imitate Jesus' service and his ways towards others. And then this third idea, in seeing Jesus' words and seeing his greatness, we begin to see real joy. And again, it's hard for us to believe this. But if you, consider, if you consider what happens to Bartimaeus, he calls out, he wants to see Jesus. Jesus asks him a question. Jesus gives him sight and says, go, and he can't help but follow Jesus. It's an irresistible kind of love and kindness. He's been so greatly influenced by Jesus' words, all he wants to do is be near him. You know, for those of you who use social media, when I say social media influencer, you probably know what that means. Uh, you know, in the, in the beginning, when, you know, when social media started, it was all about just following people and liking things and sort of being in the know. But it's actually become a, a profession for people to become social media influencers. And I was reading an article about this, and they said this. Top influencers in lifestyle, fashion, travel, and technology leverage their reach through partnerships with brands to promote the brand's products and services. Some of the biggest Instagram influencers drive real impact in the marketplace because they have established credibility amongst their followers and gain consumers trust and thoughtful content that tells an authentic original story they provide their followers with a wealth of content from tips and tips and tricks product reviews recommendations and hours of creative pictures blogs and videos top influencers can build trust in an organic way by being honest true to themselves and consistent with their personal brand and messaging guys do you see that that's that's what jesus does Jesus is an influencer because he, he reveals in an organic way. He shows that this is all about his life. And what you discover as you watch his life is that he's selfless and he's kind and he's merciful. And now when people trust him, he lavishes love on them in ways they never expected. And his love begins to influence how they then live. They begin to trust him more as they follow him. They begin to allow who he is to influence them more as they learn about his content. Jesus is like the ultimate social media influencer, right? You know, the scriptures are meant to influence us and shape us and, and, and create for us a right understanding of who Jesus is so that we can experience joy. God's longing for you. God's promise for you. In this life, in part, but in the next life for sure, is that you are going to experience grace forever. You're going to experience love forever. You're going to experience freedom forever. You're going to experience intimacy with God perfectly. You're going to be restored and renewed to relationships. God has great things planned for us. I, I mentioned this earlier. 
But John chapter 14 says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. If you're looking to Jesus' word, if you're, if you're learning to trust him and pursue his idea of greatness, he's leading you to this kind of joy, a reality where you are going to experience true, irresistible, immeasurable grace, and it's all yours, as easy as it was for Bartimaeus. Go. Your faith has healed you. Jesus invites us tonight to really ask ourselves a question. What do we let influencing us most? How are we spending ourselves? How are we working out our lives? You know, when you're, when you're in 10th grade, all you can do is wait to be in 11th grade. And when you're in 11th grade, you're thinking college is going to be the real answer to all your prayers. And then you get out of college and go, oh my goodness, I have to get a job. And then you finally get a job. Okay, finally we've done it. Look, I'm 45. That, that's a lie. God has created you for joy today, meaning today, grace today. There's no leveling up before you get to experience it. He welcomes you to approach him by faith, to see his sacrifice for you and what he's accomplished for you, to see his calling upon you, to understand and to pursue how to be great in his eyes, which means how to serve each other, how to love each other. You know, I've only, my uh, one year anniversary is coming up here at Grace in July. And in my short time here, I have been so humbled by how I've seen people in our church serve me and serve and care for one another. That's all Jesus stuff. He's actively at work in our church. There's greatness in that sense in our church. And it's really beautiful and it's meaningful. And God's inviting us to lean into that so that we can taste and see that he's good. We can really experience joy. As we approach the table, I want you to ask that question of yourself. Where, where are you looking really to define your life and, and to understand his word? Now, where are you, when, you're, when you think of greatness, like what is it you can finally be content with and how you spend your life? Are you seeking to be great as Jesus defines it? And when you ask the question of where am I really finding joy, the, the God of heaven and earth, the Lord, the Son of David, calls out to you, has mercy on you, and says, I want you to have peace. I want you to have joy. And this is where it is found. So as we celebrate the supper, it's an opportunity for us to ask Jesus to increase our faith that we might celebrate him, and that we might see his kingdom together. All right? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the stories that we have in the gospel of Mark, where you tell us very clearly that you're, you're one who is willing to suffer, to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be condemned, not just by men, but by your Father, to give yourself as a ransom for many, to give yourself as a ransom for us. We pray that your spirit would help us to understand that you died, but you rose again. And that we might take great comfort and great courage and great hope from the fact that you are our king. You are our Lord. And you are one who comes to be gracious to us. Would you give us the faith that we need to be able to live into that joy that you have prepared for us? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.